The destinations discussed in this episode are on the traditional lands of the Kualuitekan, Lipan Apache, Tonkawa, Humano, and Comanche peoples. Rising from a hilltop above the University of Texas in Austin is an Art Deco castle keep. Walk past the animal statues that stand guard outside, mustangs to the west, a saber-toothed cat to the east, and you'll enter this castle's great hall, illuminated by tall, narrow windows high up the wall. The castle, actually the Texas Memorial Museum, even has a resonant dragon, or at least the closest thing that evolution has ever given us to one. Before we meet this beast and the treasure it guards, let's take a moment to consider dragons. Pull people from different periods of history and in different parts of the world, and you'd probably get widely divergent thoughts on what they look like and what they signify. In Christian Europe, they might symbolize evil and be the subject of a quest for a saint or a noble knight. In classical China, they might be a sign of good luck or a symbol of imperial power. In Mesoamerica, the dragon-like feathered serpent Quetzalcoatl to the Aztecs, was associated with the wind and was the patron of culture and civilization. Wherever and whenever you go, dragons are powerful symbols, and, because of the wide range of things they can symbolize, they remain that way even in the globalized world of the 21st century. We can assign so many roles to dragons because of one convenient trait. They don't exist. As mythical animals, they can look the way we want them to, and we can adapt them to be anything from national emblems to characters in a fantasy novel. Sometimes, though, nature offers up tantalizing clues of animals every bit as fantastic as dragons, and the long-extinct animal that dominates the Texas Memorial Museum is one of these. The skeleton that will almost certainly cause your jaw to drop upon entering the room is actually a replica. It's real fossils, it's 66 million years old, too fragile and important for public display, were discovered in Big Bend National Park in the 1970s. More remains have been found elsewhere in recent decades, fleshing out our picture of one of the most spectacular animals ever to have lived. It was a pterosaur, a cousin of the dinosaurs, and one of only four groups of animals to take to the air. Like other flying animals, bats, birds, and insects, it has many adaptations for flight. A lightly built body, well-developed attachments for muscles, 3D vision, and, of course, wings. There are some oddities that set this animal apart, such as its long yet rigid neck bones and enormous skull. But when you walk into the Great Hall, what strikes you first is not the evolutionary story told by its anatomy, but its overwhelming size. An insect or a bat is large if it's as big as a good-sized drone. The largest flying birds could be compared to a hang glider. This creature, until fairly recently thought to be the largest flying animal ever, most closely matches the wingspan of an airplane. Its almost unbelievable size and its discovery just across the Rio Grande from Mexico prompted its discoverers to name it after Mesoamerica's feathered serpent, Quetzalcoatlus. The combination of weird anatomy, gigantism, and a memorable name have made Quetzalcoatlus a paleontological celebrity, and, especially if you or anyone you know has fossil-obsessed children, you're likely to have seen reconstructions of it before. What it's doing in those reconstructions, though, may vary as widely as do the behaviors of dragons in myth. It might be shown eating fish, or carrion, or even live dinosaurs. Its habitat might be a coastline, or it might be a Serengeti-like plain, and it's as likely to be shown shuffling across that landscape on all fours as it is to be soaring above it. 
This uncertainty surrounding the behavior of Quetzalcoatlus is due to the fact that we know it only from fossilized bones and can't observe it interacting with other organisms and with its environment. Does this mean that the behavior of pterosaurs is doomed to remain in the realm of guesswork? Is any attempt to reconstruct an extinct animal's behavior as much a work of fiction as the dragons of Tolkien and George R.R. R. Martin? Fortunately, the answer to both questions is no, and if you want to explore the clues and tools available to us to put flesh on the bones of long-dead animals like Quetzalcoatlus, all you have to do is head downstairs to the basement of the Texas Memorial Museum and the fossil treasure trove stored there. Welcome aboard the Voyages podcast. I'm John Orkut, and in this episode, we're traveling to the Texas Hill Country and the cities on the plains below. This is a landscape rich in fossils, many stored in the museums of Austin, San Antonio, and Waco, but many still visible among the sage and cedar of the Texan countryside. There are few better places in the world to see firsthand the evidence that allows paleontologists to reconstruct long-dead animals as living, breathing individuals. This evidence exists in three main forms. The bodies of fossil animals themselves can provide hints as to how that animal might have functioned in life, as a series of cat fossils from a cave outside of San Antonio shows. We'll explore this case study today, which in many ways is a sequel to our previous episode, with which it shares a focal group of organisms, several concepts, and even a destination. Where a fossil is found and how it is preserved can shed light on how it interacted with its environment is illustrated by an Ice Age bone bed outside of Waco. In some rare but spectacular cases, direct evidence of an organism's lifestyle is preserved in the rock record. And these traces are so common in the Texas Hill Country that the region has become one of the most important in the world for understanding the behavior of dinosaurs. The fossils of Central Texas tell these stories so well that, in order to stick to a half-hour runtime, I've split this episode in two, and we'll explore the links between geology and behavior on the first Thursday in August. Before we can make sense of any of this evidence, though, we need to travel to the hills themselves to understand what makes the region so rich in important fossils. extending west from a line between Austin and San Antonio. It's a beautiful landscape, a biologically diverse scrub forest where eastern species like bald cypress and soft-shell turtles overlap with western ones such as cacti and javelinas. It's home to farms, ranches, and increasingly wineries, inspiration for a long list of musicians headlined by Willie Nelson, and the birthplace of President Lyndon Johnson. This unique ecosystem and its impact on Texan history and culture deserves an episode of its own, but for now let's focus on the rocks that form the landscape and the fossils they contain. These fossils are so common and so well preserved for three geological reasons, all tied to water. Today the landscape is dry, almost desert-like in places, but around 115 million years ago, Texas was at the southern end of an inland sea that stretched north to Canada. The best evidence for this are the fossils of marine organisms that are routinely found throughout the region, 
some of which are on display in all three of the major museums in the area, the Texas Memorial Museum in Austin, the Mayborn Museum in Waco, and the Witte Museum in San Antonio. It was in these seas that the rocks of the hill country were first deposited as mud rich in the mineral calcium carbonate. Carbonate dissolves in cold water, meaning it wouldn't build up in temperate or deep oceans, so its presence in central Texas tells us that the waters here were warm and shallow. They were so shallow, in fact, that parts of the region were occasionally left high and dry along the eastern coastline of the ancient island continent of Laramidia. We'll come to the most compelling evidence for this sea level change in the second part of this episode. Over time, the carbonate mud of the Cretaceous Sea hardened into limestone, the rock that makes up the majority of the hill country's bedrock today. In flatter areas, these rocks are overgrown with vegetation and soil, but thanks to another interaction with water, outcrops of limestone occur throughout the hill country. Unlike the mountains of West Texas where Quetzalcoatlus was found, the hills of Central Texas were not pushed up by volcanoes or tectonic activity. Instead, they were sculpted by running water. To the north and west of the hill country lies the Edwards Plateau, a vast, flat highland. Water runs off the plateau towards the Gulf of Mexico by way of one of the hill country's three major rivers, the San Antonio, the Guadalupe, or the Colorado. As it flows, it erodes away the limestone into the gullies, cliffs, and canyons that give the hill country its name. You can see evidence of this throughout the region, such as at Guadalupe River State Park, where the river is carved an especially impressive set of bluffs. And this erosion isn't just taking place on the surface, but underground as well. As water seeps into the ground here, it dissolves surface deposits of limestone, leaving behind the craggy landscape known as karst. Further below the surface, it hollows out the cave systems which dot the hill country, and parts of the plains below. Besides creating a captivating landscape, all this erosion exposes fossils from the Cretaceous Seaway, but as we'll see in the next segment of this episode, it also creates environments in which younger fossils can be preserved. So too does a third unusual feature of the hill country's water cycle. The scrub forests here are diverse, but in most areas large trees are few and far between, and the soils seldom develop to more than a few inches of depth. Thick soils and extensive plant root systems act like sponges, soaking up rainwater in large volumes. But in central Texas, when rain falls, it continues to flow along the surface, meaning that just a little precipitation can lead to flash floods. And as anyone who's experienced a Texas thunderstorm can tell you, rain doesn't always fall lightly here, meaning that the low-lying areas at the base of the hills are prone to occasional catastrophic flooding. Not sure how that's relevant to the behavior of extinct animals? Stick around for the second part of this episode. In the meantime, though, let's return to Austin and the basement of the Texas Memorial Museum, to examine how fossils themselves can provide clues to how ancient animals lived. The fossil gallery that sits directly beneath the Great Hall in its titanic Quetzalcoatlus is a classic university museum, packed cheek to jowl with ancient Texan vertebrates. Though its most beautiful fossil is not a vertebrate at all, but a slab of small sea stars found locally and named Austin Aster in honor of the live music capital of the world. Skeleton-heavy museums like this often get compared to zoos or menageries, but of course there's one crucial difference. Everything in this gallery is dead for hundreds of thousands if not millions of years. 
In a real zoo, or in the wild, or even at home with a pet, when you see an animal, you're seeing an organism that operates as it does because of three aspects of its biology. The animal's morphology, its physical structure and anatomy, is the easiest to observe. There's also its physiology, the functioning of the various systems, such as digestion or respiration, that allow the animal to survive and reproduce. And finally, there's behavior, the way that animals respond to and interact with their environment. Take, for example, the armadillos you're likely to see if you spend much time in the hill country. Their diet, a physiological trait, consists mostly of insects. They've evolved several morphological traits related to this diet, most visibly their large claws that are useful for tearing apart the nests of termites and ants and for grubbing insects out of the soil. Their large clawed arms allowed them to excavate burrows, a behavioral trait. This lifestyle in turn may explain why they have such poor eyesight, a physiological trait that could itself impact other aspects of armadillo biology. When we look at a living animal, we can observe all three of the engine's power in this complex feedback loop in action. When you look at a fossil, though, you're seeing just one, morphology, and in almost all cases, some, if not most, of that morphology is missing. But because morphology, physiology, and behavior all interact with and shape one another, a single leg of the tripod can provide clues about the other two. Sometimes the leap is a very easy one to make. The presence of fins on the Onion Creek Mosasaur, one of the most impressive denizens of the Cretaceous Seas of Texas, means that it was almost certainly a swimmer, while the wings of Quetzalcoatlus are pretty compelling evidence that it could fly. These are straightforward examples of comparative anatomy, the field from which paleontology was born. The central tenet of comparative anatomy is, in effect, that if two animals have similar morphologies, it's likely that they had comparable behavior and physiology as well. Such comparisons can work even in distantly related animals. The giant Texan amphibian Ariops, for example, is not related to modern alligators, but the flattened heads and short limbs of both animals support the idea that Ariops lurked in shallow water and ambushed prey from there, as do living crocodilians. Often, though, the fossil record yields an animal that can't really be compared to anything alive today, and Texas is especially rich in such oddities. What can we make of the sail-backed mammal relatives Demetrodon and Adaphosaurus, the trombone-like crest of the duck-billed dinosaur Parasaurolophus, or the flattened tusks on the lower jaw of the elephant relative Amibelodon? And then there's Homotherium, the animal at the center stage of the Texas Memorial Museum's fossil gallery. It's a cat, and a very big one, found in large numbers at a site just outside of San Antonio. Friesenhahn Cave is one of the many caverns carved out of central Texas's limestone by groundwater, and as with many caves, the stable, protected conditions within proved to be ideal for preserving Ice Age fossils. Thousands of individual fossils have been removed from the site, a huge number of them coming from Homotherium, meaning that we have no shortage of information about the animal's morphology. Some comparisons are easy to make. Like all cats, it has huge blade-like molars that clearly indicate an all-meat diet. An enlarged nose and the portion of the skull that encases the inner ear suggest its senses were as keen as those of modern lions, leopards, jaguars, and even house cats. But not everything about Homotherium has a clear analog in its living relatives, as any visitor to the museum can clearly see from a quick glance at the jaw and its most unusual feature, a pair of elongated saber teeth.
the more obscure animals in the Texas Memorial Museum's collections. When I talk about saber-toothed cats, it's likely that everyone listening can picture the animal I mean. The image that's most likely to have sprung to mind is the famous Smilodon, so well known from the tar pits of Rancho La Brea. But it's just the best known and most studied saber-tooth. See the previous episode of Voyages for the story of another one. In fact, not only were there several species of saber-toothed cats, but many other groups of predatory mammals have evolved sword-like canines as well. In today's world, though, the only species that even comes close is the clouded leopard of Southeast Asia, and its teeth are a far cry from those of Smilodon and Homotherium. This means that we have no living species to which we can compare the canines of saber-toothed cats, but that doesn't mean that everything you've ever heard about saber-toothed behavior is wild speculation. There are other tools available to paleobiologists that allow us to reconstruct behavior based on fossils. One of these areas of study is biomechanics, in which a paleobiologist approaches an animal almost as though it were a machine, asking what forces might act upon it, what forces it could exert, and what this might tell us about its physiology and behavior. In some cases, this can be done by literally building a machine that mimics the animal being studied. There's a fantastic example of this in the world of saber-toothed paleobiology arising from the work of H. Todd Wheeler, who built what he calls RoboCat, a robotic mock-up of a saber-tooth. By fitting RoboCat with teeth appropriate to different cats, such as Smilodon and Homotherium, and by using them to bite into an animal carcass, he can observe the effects that those teeth have and predict how they might or might not have been used in life. When fitted with Homotherium teeth, Wheeler saw that the RoboCat didn't just puncture holes in the carcass, but that its canines were very effective at enlarging the wound as they moved through the flesh. This led him to suggest that unlike modern cats, which generally crush or suffocate their prey with their robust teeth and powerful jaws, Homotherium may have been more of a hit-and-run predator, causing significant damage with a single bite that would severely injure its target. In the 21st century, of course, most biomechanists don't make actual physical models like RoboCat instead carrying out their research using digital 3D models of the fossils in question. The detailed, repeatable, and wide-ranging studies this makes possible have revolutionized biomechanics. A lot of uncertainty and debate remains, though, especially when it comes to Smilodon, whose canines were not just extremely long, but very thin, making them a seeming liability when it comes to grappling with prey. There's at least one well-known specimen that's lost one of its canines, though whether this was the result of hunting remains unknown. Fortunately, other parts of the body, and a related field of paleobiology, have shed light on how different saber-toothed species might have hunted. cat play, and you'll notice that they mainly use their arms. They differ in this way from dogs and their wild relatives, which primarily use their mouths to capture prey and manipulate objects. And because of this, cats tend to have larger, more robust arms relative to their body size. You can see these beefy arms on an even larger scale in the Friesenhan cave Homotherium, and if you had a Smilodon skeleton handy, you'd see that it follows this trend to an almost absurd degree. You might find yourself asking what caused this evolution of super-robust arms in some saber-tooths, and if so, you're thinking like a functional morphologist. Where biomechanics studies an animal as though it were a machine, functional morphology studies the same animal through the eyes of an engineer. The phrase form follows function is usually applied to architecture, 
but the same idea is at the heart of funky morph, as those of us in the know like to call it. The idea is that a species' morphology has evolved either in response to its physiology or to its interactions with the world around it. In other words, its behavior. A detailed study of that species' morphology, then, how it's changed through time and how it compares to that of other species, could allow us to identify the factors that drove its evolution and reconstruct its behavior. Sabretooth arms provide one of the best, and one of my favorite, examples of how such research can be carried out. We owe a lot of what we know about the function of saber-tooth arms to the work of Julie Meachin, who compared canine size to a number of measurements of arm bones of cats and related species, both extinct and extant. A clear pattern emerged. While all cats have robust arms, those of living conical-tooth cats and their fossil relatives are more lightly built than the arms of saber-tooth cats. What's more, by most measurements of arm beefiness, Homotherium is more similar to modern lions and tigers than it is to its slender-toothed relative, Smilodon. When you look at the skeleton of Homotherium posed dramatically in the center of the Texas Memorial Museum's fossil hall, then, you may be looking at an animal that, despite its toothiness, could have hunted in a very similar way to modern big cats, grappling with its prey with its arms but killing with its mouth. Smilodon, on the other hand, while a fairly close relative, may have relied much more heavily on subduing its prey with its arms before unsheathing its more fragile sabers. This is still an ongoing debate, though, and one that takes new twists and turns every time a new discovery is made, every time our picture of saber-tooth evolution becomes a little clearer, and every time new insight is gained into the environments in which Homotherium and its relatives lived. One such insight was published in the midst of my prep for this episode, and provides not only a great example of one more way of wresting behavioral clues from fossils, but an unusually clear window into the life of predators and prey in Ice Age San Antonio. Homotherium isn't the only animal from Friesenhan Cave, which has also yielded bones of possible prey such as tapirs, horses, mammoths, and bison. And other sites from the prairies and hills of central Texas have produced camels, deer, mastodons, and javelinas. But which of these were the favored targets of Homotherium, and how did it consume them after capturing them? This might seem like an unanswerable question, but the old adage, you are what you eat, applies to extinct saber-toothed cats as much as it does to our diets. Every meal the cat ate in its life left its mark on the predator's body, and especially on its teeth. But what are these marks, and what do they tell us? This was the central question of a paper published this year by Larissa DeSantis and her colleagues, who examined two aspects of Homotherium teeth from Friesenhan Cave. The first was the microscopic pattern of wear produced on the teeth while eating, which can tell us about how an animal might have consumed its food. When a predator gnaws on or crushes a bone, its teeth are subjected to a lot of stress, leaving a complex series of pits and scratches in the enamel of its molars. Such complex patterns are common in hyenas, lions, and cougars, but not in Homotherium, whose less complex wear patterns suggest that it avoided the bone-crunching behavior of some of its relatives. At the same time, though, much of the wear on the Friesenhan cave teeth is oriented along a single axis, a pattern usually seen in predators that eat a lot of tough meat. So perhaps Homotherium focused on animals with thick hides, but stuck mainly to soft flesh around the bones rather than risking damaging their teeth on the hard skeleton. 
A few of the species found at Friesenhahn Cave could fit the description of a tough-skinned herbivore. And another aspect of tooth enamel can help us pin down which of these were favored by Homotherium. When plants gather energy from the sun during photosynthesis, they can do so by a few different pathways, each with its own chemical signature in the form of stable isotopes of carbon. The most widely used types of photosynthesis are C3, which is especially common in broadleaf trees, and C4, which is characteristic of most grasses. An animal living in a woodland environment is likely to eat mostly C3 plants, and its teeth will be rich in the carbon isotopes common in trees and shrubs. On the plains, though, herbivores will consume a higher percentage of grass and its characteristic carbon isotopes. When a predator eats one of these herbivores, it will accumulate the same carbon isotopes, meaning that a chemical analysis can tell you whether that predator prefers eating forest-loving browsers, grassland-dwelling grazers, or a mixture of the two. In the case of the Friesenhahn cave fossils, the results are clear. The homotherium living there preferred grazing prey, a category that includes horses, bison, and mammoths. The isotopes are an especially good match for the mammoths, but DeSantis and her colleagues were able to get even more specific. The chemical signature in the teeth of homotherium is very similar to that in the teeth of baby mammoths, and here two lines of evidence come together to tell a compelling story. The bones of young mammoths are unusually common at Friesenhahn Cave, and it's long been speculated that they may have been dragged there by the cave's big cats. This research backs up this interpretation. these lines of evidence together, and a picture emerges of the San Antonian Homotherium as predators that ambush juvenile mammoths, relying more on their arsenal of teeth to deliver the fatal blow than did many of their saber-toothed relatives, and dragging their prey back to their den in Friesenhahn Cave, where they would strip meat from bones rather than gnawing on them. Of course, no single line of evidence is ironclad. The isotopes analyzed from the cat's teeth are also not too different from those seen in horses or bison. The wear patterns on their molars may reflect only their last few meals, which might not be an accurate snapshot of their usual diet. Their relatively lightly built arms could reflect the evolutionary relationships or the size of Homotherium more directly than they do its hunting style, and biomechanical models that show that their bite could have delivered a deadly wound don't necessarily imply that they did use their jaws in this way. As so often in science, then, we're dealing with probabilities when it comes to reconstructing behavior in extinct animals. But when every single line of evidence seems to point in the same direction, we can be increasingly confident in our conclusions. The skeleton of Homotherium in the Texas Memorial Museum represents a species for which we do have multiple independent studies all pointing the same way. But you don't have to go far to find a pair of animals about which we know a lot less. Just turn around and look at the skeletons of Texas's iconic prehistoric animals. I mentioned the sails on the back of Demetrodon and Adaphosaurus earlier which have made them among the fossil record's most recognizable creatures. They're distant relatives of ours, and of all mammals, but that evolutionary distance is so great that we really don't have any living animals to compare them to, and no species living today has sails that even remotely compare to theirs. Biomechanics and functional morphology can still provide valuable hints as to their behavior, but without clear modern comparisons, a widely agreed-upon explanation for the sails remains elusive. Probably the leading hypothesis is that they helped the animals control their body temperature, but it's also been suggested that they may have been involved in display, for distinguishing closely related species, for camouflage, and even for movement. In all likelihood, they serve some combination of functions. 
While we can speak to the behavior of homotherium with a lot more certainty, it's always possible that new fossil discoveries or insight into their biology could change our interpretation or add an entirely new perspective to our picture of life in ancient San Antonio. And of course, there are many aspects of this cat's life that skeleton may not be helpful for understanding. Social behavior is one of these. Most cats alive today are solitary, with lions as the only major group-living exception. But many paleontologists, including yours truly, have suggested that some saber-toothed cats may have been social. This is based not on their anatomy, but on where they're found, and in what numbers. Does the abundance of saber-tooths at Rancho La Brea and Friesenhan Cave suggest that Smilodon and Homotherium lived in large, lion-like prides? Or did they just happen to get preserved in large numbers at these sites over long periods of time? This aspect of saber-tooth behavior remains an area of active debate, but that's not the case for the species represented by one of the largest individual fossils on display in the Texas Memorial Museum. Just around the corner of the museum's centerpiece from Homotherium is the skull of what seems to have been its preferred prey, the Columbian Mammoth. This elephant was a huge evolutionary success story and was widespread across North America during the Ice Ages. But a spectacular sight from Central Texas illustrates not just that this species was highly social, but how different sexes and age groups interacted with one another. We'll hit the road from Austin in our next episode to explore this locality and what preservation can tell us about an extinct animal's behavior and then return to the landscape of the hill country and the cityscape of San Antonio to discover how the behavior of even larger and much older animals literally left its mark on the geological record. Until then, you can catch up on older episodes and dive deeper into topics we've covered on the Voyages website, voyagepod.wordpress.com. You can also find out about the music featured on each episode, which in this case is an overview of Texan and Tejano music available on the Smithsonian Folkways label by the Fort Worth Symphony Orchestra and Los Tex Maniacs. As always, you can contact me with any feedback or suggestions for future episodes through the website or via email at voyagepod at gmail.com. And please do take a moment to rate, review, like, and subscribe to Voyages on the podcatcher of your choice, and tell your friends. Thanks for joining me on this first leg of the voyage deep into the hearts of fossils. I hope you'll join me for part two on the first Thursday in August and on all the voyages to come. Mm -hmm.